welcome to another episode of Thick and Thin, where ball is always life. I'm your host, Karthik, here with my co-host, Nathan. What's up, man? What's going on, man? It felt like a long two days of no basketball between Sunday's All-Star game and tonight, uh, things getting back in action. But we're, we're underway in the second half of the season, and to make us feel like all is right again in the world, the Wizards got their ass beat by Memphis. And so it kind of feels like, you know, the vaccine's getting rolled out. The Wizards are retaking their position at the bottom of the Eastern Conference. And things are starting to flow. We're starting to feel like our, our year and a half from hell is, is coming to an end. Be honest, when the second half of the season started today, did you have hope that the Wizards, you know, maybe going to turn it around? They, they had a nice little stretch near the end, right before All-Star break. And did you get your hopes up? Not only did I not get my hopes up, I slammed Memphis minus three tonight. Uh, that was the mortal lock of the century. Look, I think the like we were talking about pre-break, the Wizards' like you know nice stretch of play was actually accentuated by several wins against really good teams. So it wasn't just like they were beating up on the Pistons and the Cavs. So you could talk yourself into the eight and three stretch being actually legit, but I knew better. Uh, I watched some of those games, like the Lakers game, for example, no AD. The Lakers looked kind of dysfunctional. The Celtics game, they looked totally disoriented. So I felt like actually watching the team, they didn't necessarily look a lot better. They were just kind of playing well in spurts, and I think it was bound to end. And this, I mean, they just don't have that much talent. So what can you do? Like, this is going to end ugly, which is honestly fine because Cade Cunningham looks like the fucking truth and the more chance we have to add him to the nucleus I'm all for it okay pump the Cade Cunningham talk because he's coming to Sacramento next year so uh you're not you're not going to be getting Cade Cunningham or anyone you're not getting Kuminga you're not getting any of those guys there's plenty of other teams that are bottom feeders that I think we're going to outpace I'm surprised you actually own your first round pick and it's not routed through like eight other (laughs) teams (laughs) it feels like so long since we've actually drafted in the first round but um I mean we had last year but but and then when you do that's Marvin Bagley so exactly Bagley feels like forever ago and yeah he hasn't you know, done much yet. So, yeah. But before we talk basketball on the court, we do have to address kind of a uh, a black mark uh, story, if you will, on the league. So, I'm sure a lot of you heard about Myers Leonard um, yesterday. I think was streaming on his uh, Twitch channel playing Call of Duty. He's actually sponsored, or was sponsored, I should say, by Phase Clan, the same you know big gaming group that sponsors Bronny James, among others, and he. He basically, you know, uttered a anti-Semitic slur in the heat of the moment, whatever, whatever. But clearly a word that's often not even used in even casual vernacular, even by those who are intending to be, you know, ethnically disrespectful or anything like that. So it was definitely, I think, caught a lot of people off guard for good reason. He came out with a very <laughs> oddly worded uh, apology, one where he claimed he did not know the meaning of the word, which... If you're going to use that word, I find it hard to believe, um, you know, we can get into all of that. But, you know, he's been sort of banned indefinitely from the team, suspended, uh, obviously lost that gaming partnership. And the world is uh, on notice, I guess, of, of that behavior. So, you know, the first thing I would I would bring up is he was in the news uh, during the bubble season because he didn't st- he didn't kneel for the national anthem. He he stood and he said he had a lot of conversations with teammates, coaches, execs. 
his brothers in the military. And I actually didn't mind that he did that as much as that was something that was more about team unity than it was whether or not you want to stand for the anthem specifically. But I respected it like, okay, the military, you know, that must mean something that's fine. And he's always been painted as a great teammate. Uh, Damian Lillard speaks highly of him, like from his time in Portland. And so it definitely caught me off guard. It definitely uh, upset me, um, you know, just to see a someone saying something like that, which is a pretty old school term and a very, very damaging term to Jewish people. But what were your instant reactions? And um, I guess any other thoughts top of mind uh, when this played out? It's definitely disappointing, I think, because the way it happened, too, was, look, I'm a big Call of Duty guy. I play Call of Duty all the time. And yeah, you get into the heat of the moment. I understand that you you get pissed at people, but the way he kind of said it with the pause and then the enunciation, clear enunciation, it wasn't like a slip of the tongue. He paused before he said it, very intentional. And it, you have to go deep into your lingo. Uh, you're, you've got a racist lingo to to pull a word out like that. So um, yeah. that was the first thing. And then the apology. I mean, people on Twitter were already before uh, he actually came out with his apology. After the incident, people on Twitter were predicting word for word what he was going to say. And what he put yeah. out was the most generic PR statement that read exactly how a lot of people predicted. He talked about how he didn't know, you know, he, uh, what that word really meant. And he he promises to do better in the future and yada, yada, yada. And I think it's the most disappointing thing about this whole thing was that it wasn't subtle. It was just a very stark word that was used and used to intentionally, like he was upset at someone and he used that word in a derogatory fashion. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, it's like you said, I, I was also someone who bought his explanation in the uh, about the standing for before the anthem. And he, by all accounts, he has been a good teammate. So I gave him the benefit of the doubt. But then when something like this happens, you start to look back at that other, uh, you know, the standing for the anthem too. And whether it's right or not, you wonder... Are there is there something else behind this guy that we just don't know? And in a league like the NBA, where you don't see this that often, and um, it's it's kind of disappointing. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think I don't know if you had this connection when when this happened, but the first thing I thought of was Riley Cooper uh, when he was a member of the Eagles, and he said the N word at a concert, and it was very similar in that it couldn't have been a one time out of body mistake because nobody uses that language in the in the tone and in the you know instance in which they use it this isn't like rapping to a drake song and accidentally saying it right like this was a totally different situation for riley cooper and very clearly a totally different situation for uh myers leonard and you know i think i think it's really interesting because the way we evaluate a lot of this stuff tends to be black and white and in a lot of cases it should be Right. It's a very open and shut thing that happened. But both of us started talking about how we thought he was a good teammate, blah, blah, blah. And like now we're we hate this guy. He's racist and all this stuff. And I, I, I guess the question I would ask is, can there be instances where both parts of that have some truth to it? Right. He is a good teammate. And Damian Lillard and the Blazers and the Heat organizations do like him and have enjoyed keeping him around. He's got he got paid again despite not really playing the back half of last season. So clearly he's someone that, you know, teammates and the coaches liked in the locker room. At the same time, you know, we don't know everyone's background the way that we feel like we do, right? Or we don't know everyone's kind of 
upbringing, what their mentality is. I think one thing that our newfound sort of spotlight on racial injustice has shown us is that a lot of people have a lot of views that were often probably not bought, brought to the forefront. And I don't think this is necessarily related to that. Like, I'm not going to draw the parallels to say, oh, somehow this is related to everything else that's going on in the country. But clearly, this is somebody that, you know, whether he wants to plead ignorance or not, knew this was an insult because he wouldn't have used it if it wasn't an insult. Like you said, gaming culture is intense and you're trying to, you know, get to the, I don't know, you're trying to basically like call out the other person as much as possible. So you go deep into your bag, but it's still your bag at the end of the day, right? Like, for example, no matter how heated of an argument I'm in, I would never say that because that's not in my vocabulary, yeah. right? And so the fact that it is represents something, the fact that he may be a good diff- teammate may represent something different. I don't think those are necessarily mutually exclusive, but it, it's kind of like before we get to the everything else, you kind of have to deal with situation one, which is he said this on camera, on mic. So let's 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 pause on the broader conversation for a second, but what do you think is the appropriate reaction or response from the league and from the heat um, in this instance, because it's tough. There's, I don't know that there's a, there's a level that will make everyone happy. I I don't think so either. And you're right. You're completely right. It's, it's unfortunate that the way we look at people these days, when they make a, as egregious as a mistake as it was, it defines them. And we choose to ignore everything else, the good they may have done. Now, there are a lot of people also going out there and defending Leonard, saying you shouldn't be upset with this because he is a good teammate, because he donates to all these charitable causes. Like, I've seen that. And it's just gaming culture. I've heard that one a bunch, and, too. And it's oh, also, it's so, like, yeah, you, you definitely yeah. shouldn't excuse it. But at the same time, I, I get it that that shouldn't define him. Um, and look, there are, like, there's some truth to the fact that people do need to learn. Like, there are words that we just, there are words that, I mean, we've all used 10, 15 years ago, casually, that we've erased from our vocabulary because we learned that it has a different meaning, it has a different yeah. uh, intention than the way we wanted to use it, and you improve. So, you know, you hope that a guy like him improves. I think the Heat do have to do some kind of punishment. I don't know if it's a cuttable, like, you know, offense, but I also don't think the answer is simply just, oh, make him go to some, you know, speak to a couple, uh, you know, Jewish uh, figures of leadership and and learn yeah. a little bit more about the culture. I know that's a common, like maybe that's one part of the solution, but I think there does need to be some kind of um, penalty. And look, I think the league does need to treat this seriously because there is a lot of a lot of athletes, right? Especially a lot of these um, black athletes have, you know, supported Louis Farrakhan, have supported figures who have expressed anti-Jewish sentiment. And there's there's a lot of people out there who think that those those athletes should also be treated as as racists. And, you know, anti-Jewish sentiment is a, is also racist, just like anti-Black sentiment is. And, I, I you know, we shouldn't get into this place where um, we should treat all these sentiments, these racist sentiments equally. And, you know, a mm-hmm. lot of this is coming up in the conversation, too, around the violence on Asian Americans. They're also a group being un- treated unfairly. They're also a group being kind of, um, uh, facing a lot of these uh, racial issues. And I think the league needs to make it clear that it's not just about Black Lives Matter. This shouldn't stand for uh, across, you know, it doesn't matter if you're Asian, Jewish, Black, White. The league does not tolerate this. And I think they, because of that, I do think that the the heat or at least the league does need to make a pretty strong statement, even though I know on the surface it doesn't seem like a big thing. 
I do think that that sentiment shouldn't get kind of buried under the fact that if the league does want to be this progressive kind of uh, uh, torchbearer of social justice, you you have to make sure that that's equally treated across all. Yeah, I mean, I think what this reminds me of as you were talking about this is uh, in the bubble when I think it was Montrez Harrell called uh, Luka Doncic a bitch-ass white boy, right? And it was this big controversy. And the fact that I just said it means that I... Clearly, it's not the yeah. same undertones or the yep. same sort of like, you know, taboo as something else I could have said or someone else could have said type thing. So I think to that regard, it's one of those things where it's like, if we're going to create a true platform of equality, which is of utmost important, not just in the NBA, but across the board in all fields and in all industries, like you said, we have to legislate it in a way that makes everyone feel comfortable, everyone feel like they're not being dehumanized because of who they are. Like, like, um, Jeremy Lin came out and he said, well, I was called coronavirus on the court, uh, because, you know, he's of Chinese descent. And I mean, that's fucked up, right? Like that's super fucked up. And I think part of what, um, there's a lot of layers to it. So I don't want to oversimplify the conversation of how we treat different forms of racism and whether they truly are the same or whether they're not, because I think you could argue that in many different ways, including, you know, for example, we're both Asian. So I'll speak in regards to Asian people. Like I told you when we did the George Floyd episode that like years, years and years ago, post 9-11, people would call me like a terrorist. Right. And that was just like the joke. And that's really messed up. And like, in all honesty, like there's probably more Asian racism that goes unchecked because Asian people are largely successful in positions of power and therefore are not necessarily subject to institutional systemic racism, which I think is much more harmful than maybe, you know, sticks and stones, break my bones, words can never hurt me type thing. Right. So I think there's an element of that where maybe Asian people don't suffer from the same type of systemic racism in the US. And I'm only speaking to the US because that's what I know. Um, But at the same time, I think, you know, hate speech targeted any at anybody is really, really harmful and dangerous and hurtful and really doesn't get us to anything any more of an advanced society than we exist in today. Like saying what Myers Leonard said, you know, we're not Jewish, but from our understanding, it's a really harmful term to Jewish people. That's not funny. It's not, it's not like creative. It's not, you know, analogous that he was trying to, he wasn't trying to do anything but name call. And then at that point, it's like, okay, you got to come down on something. I agree. It's not a cuttable offense. I think it's very easy to say, okay, step one, we denounce everything that he just did. That was very clear. What's really tough, and I think what we've continued to struggle with as a society is what what comes next? What's step two? Because there is the camp that's saying you need to cut him and banish him from the NBA. There is a camp that's saying, hey, you guys are being soft. Like it was just, he was just spewing stupid bullshit. Like, yeah, he shouldn't have done it, but it's not that big of a deal. Maybe the answer lies in between. Maybe it is something more extreme in terms of punishment. But I think we're failing to have the conversation of what comes next because we're taking the low-hanging fruit of saying, hey, this was, this guy's an asshole. And to your earlier point, I think part of what makes us feel that way is what we said about how rare these terms are and how easy it came to him or came to a Riley Cooper. So we're starting to extrapolate. If you could say this, what else is going on in your head, right? What? How else do you feel about Jewish people or Black people? And I think 
therein lies the rub of saying, of, of evaluating him because of this one instance. Because in a lot of people's mind, and maybe what the truth is, is this isn't an isolated mistake. This is more just the first time it was caught in some type of, uh, you know, on media. And, and it was actually something that people could see. And this is just par for the course for him. And in which, if that's the case, then it's a bigger problem. Yeah, we don't know, right? We don't know. And I think you brought up a good point. There are layers to this. Like, we should not devolve into this whataboutism around, you know, but because it happened in one race, like, you know, you should look at the other one the same way. You're right. There's layers to this, right? And and the systemic issues are uh, definitely make, you know, the, the plight of black people different necessarily than the plight of Asians. But at the same time, um, we we have to denounce all, all this kind of behavior. And I think to your point around the one thing I don't like about when situations like this happen is that it's very easy for people to run around and say, point fingers back, oh, he's racist, he's racist. It's become a, a game in some ways where people get a lot of joy out of it. And, and when I say joy, I mean, it becomes this huge Twitter fodder, the memes, the jokes, and and it becomes, like, people are actually just actively looking to find that next scapegoat to catch them in, in a moment like this, and then, you know, cancel them, burn them, banish them, all that stuff, right? And I think, I think part of the problem is we take too much joy in just that, and then not, like you said, not actually figuring out what is the next logical step. No one cares about that piece. They just want to have the feel good, the, the, the feeling of, I'm not racist, but look at this guy. Look at this athlete. We caught him slipping. We caught him in a mistake. And, you know, he should pay for it. And, yep. and, and, and like, you know, what it'll be, it's interesting is that if you're someone who knows Myers Leonard, right, you have a very different uh, feeling on this whole situation. Like, none of us know him personally. We're making assumptions that this is a not an isolated incident, that this is something that happens all the time. And, you know, it might be, but at the same time, we don't know. And so I, I as much as I think it's a, what happened was terrible, I definitely don't think it should end the man's career or, um, you know, ban him from playing basketball again. And I think people who call for that are, um, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if they understand the full situation. Well, I, and I think what I would say as a quick counter to the idea of getting joy, I I think there's some element of that, right? And this this is a broader conversation. So I want to be very clear. I don't think that either of us are obviously trying to defend Myers Leonard. I think all we're trying to do is expand the conversation a little bit in terms of how we manage situations like this. So the counter to what you said about finding joy, I think there's Maybe some of that I don't disagree, but I think there's also some of it that feels like there's a lot of people who feel very unseen in a lot of ways. And what I mean by that is they feel like, like you said, their plight, their situation, their history, their background, whatever it may be, gets overlooked, gets ignored. When things like that happen, it gets pushed under the rug. And over and over again, it's like, okay, well, people make anti-Semitic comments all the time. Like Deshaun Jackson and uh, St- Stephen Jackson just got in trouble for this last summer. Like Mel Gibson has said some horrible shit. Like all these people have. And, you know, Jewish people have had like such a incredibly difficult and f- frankly just abhorrent history, right? Like in a lot of ways. And so it's like, okay, what are we doing here, right? Like, at what point does this become crossing the line the same way, you know, we, we treat other situations? So I do think there's an element of like, this is why we're so insistent on making this a big deal and blowing this up, because this is not 
one-of-one situation, right? This is not some anomaly, whether it's from Myers Leonard himself or whether it's from like millions of people who make these kind of comments. And I think that's the other side of this, where it's like, and part of where the genesis of the idea of like, let's say cancel culture, I think is rooted in something that made original sense with really kind of poorly constructed infrastructure on top of that and application on top of that. Because the ultimate idea of cancel culture and the terminology is almost as bad as the way it's actually played out. But I think the idea is not to say that you can never make mistakes or that you, you know, you're, you're literally on watch all the time. It's to say that when people commit transgressions, there should be some level of accountability that there previously hasn't been. So to me, the biggest example is a guy like Harvey Weinstein, right? Where his behavior went unchecked for years and years and getting canceled, so to speak, was justified by the fact that all the things he did started to come to light. We've let that slip in some ways. We've let that go to the extreme in some ways for people who are not him or, or for situations that are not that, for example. But I think that was the idea, which is like, look, I'm not okay just being quiet and being the silent minority anymore. Like, I want people to know that certain behavior isn't okay just because you are in a position of power or you're in the ruling class or you're of a, a you know particular socioeconomic group that's protected from this type of uh, you know, criticism. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I totally agree. And, um, and I also don't mean to downplay, uh, the Myers Leonard incident. Like I, I yeah. think, you know, when, when I talk about the joy piece, it's also, it's, it's also like exactly what you said. We need to shift the conversation. It has to go away from Myers Leonard and talk more about the systemic issue at, at hand. Like you said, like as, we that word because Myers Leonard probably used that word because he doesn't think that the plight of the Jewish people or doesn't think that that has the same connotations as maybe words about other races when that's not true at all. And that the fact that he's able to say it in Call of Duty, he the moment probably means a ton of other people say it. And so I, I think that at some point the conversation needs to be less about, I mean, look, he deserves the punishment, he deserves to kind of have to face the consequences. But at some time, we have to also see the bigger picture from this, that this is something that is probably happening in a lot of other areas. We caught him slipping, but how many other people feel that way? And, and you know, he um, and I, I think that the interesting thing about him, too, is that it's Myers Leonard grew up in a small town. <laughs> uh, right. He's a small town guy. Yeah. Um, you know, typical kind of uh, athlete type image and. But at the same time, like we we've seen the sentiment from, like you said, Deshaun Jackson. We've seen it from other athletes. Like this is not uh, the same type of profile of a person who's who's making these anti-Jewish uh, comments or mistakes or uh, sentiments, right? It, this is something that's more pervasive across all of society, across all of, um, all races. And so I think that should be a broader conversation. Why we we so loosely use those words and we don't treat their plight the same way. And and like I said, we don't we're not trying to like compare one yeah. race versus another but at the same time like we have to think about 
I don't know. I, I, just, I just think that the conversation needs to become a little bit broader. And, and like Julian Edelman, for example, I thought he had a very good response. I don't know if yep. you saw what he tweeted. I but was going to bring that up. Yeah. yeah. He kind of opened up his his arms to, to Myers Leonard and, and said, look, look, let's have a conversation about this. Um, and I appreciate that kind of approach because it's easy for a Jewish athlete to feel angered, really pissed off at him and not want to engage. Um, but, you know, that might be the first step is actually trying to engage and then figure out what is a better way to Kind of and I think he did the same with Deshaun Jackson last year, too. Oh, he did? I don't know that. Um, yeah, yeah. So he's kind of the spokesperson spokesperson for the Jewish athlete. But um, no, I thought that response was really good. It comes back to the idea of like, are we focused on reformation or are we focused on uh, punishment? Exactly. I don't think it's a all or nothing answer. I think in some instances, you absolutely have to be focused on punishment. But in other instances, maybe you focus on punishment first and then figure out the reformation angle. Um, you know, I think he's going to be suspended for the foreseeable future. Maybe it's the season. Um, but look, like, you know, does he get signed again? I don't know. I mean, I think he would. I don't think this is a career ender. But, you know, like every player who's ever had any type of off the field concern, whether it be extremely noble, like the Colin Kaepernick version or something as damaging as this, there's going to be some calculation going on of what are the pros that we're going to get versus what are the distractions and the cons we're going to get. And it's not a fair way to evaluate different situations. Like I just compared Kaepernick and Leonard, which couldn't be further apart, but unfortunately that's the business of sports and that's the way these teams decide what they want to you know bring into the building and who they want to bring in so look i think you know like i said and like you said i think we're hurt we're disappointed as just fans of the league you know sort of nominally fans of his in the sense of like thinking he was a you know pretty decent guy etc and you know, maybe it is a slip up of behavior and maybe it is some word that he has used a ton because he's heard it a bunch of Call of Duty and doesn't know what it means. And that part was true. He just heard it as like a bad insult. And maybe that's the case. We don't know. I mean, for the sake of both the fact that we don't want that word to be used, plus for his own benefit, like hopefully that's true. Right. But I think ultimately, like we got to think about how we come back and respond and what what's the like next step. Because I think that's where we really struggle with. Like I said, I just, I don't know, like, um, okay, he suspended 20 games then comes back and then what? You know, maybe in this NBA where there are really not that many other Jewish athletes, it's not something that people think of. But what if this was a Riley Cooper situation? Riley Cooper got an extension after that, which was mind-blowing. And he came back and played, went to the same locker room. And so, you know... Sometimes I think athletes will put anything aside if it helps you win games because that's ultimately what they're all there for. Um, and there have been other instances where players have made racial remarks that are still welcomed back to some degree, like Richie Incognito, for example. Um, and so I don't really know what makes everyone tick. I just know that, A, I think that the, the response from the league has to be quick and it's got to be – it has to make a statement that that none of this is, is is tolerable like you said but then b it should also not be an open and shut case on the entirety of his playing career uh versus allowing him a chance to figure out a way to atone for his mistake that's that's my belief at least absolutely i totally agree and it'll be interesting to see how other uh players i mean like you said there's not many there are very few jewish players in the nba but 
curious to see how other players perceive him now too, right? In terms of how they think he'd fit back in their locker room, because that becomes another angle on this where if teams want to sign him, but let's say the players are not comfortable with it, or, you know, maybe they don't take much of an issue with this, but then now you have players maybe thinking back to his standing during the anthem and they start to think, is this guy worth having in the locker room? Right. And those are all decisions individual teams have to make, but completely agree with your point. Um, the NBA, I think should suspend him, but, uh, this is not a, a career ender. We need to figure out a way to kind of take this, learn from it, and and uh, move on. Yeah. From it. Also, dude, like you're an NBA player. Like I get that you have a a Twitch, uh, you know, Phase Clan sponsorship thing, but fucking have some like discipline and some general sense of like responsibility. Like you make millions of dollars on the court. I'm sure Phase Camp Clan plays you well, pays you well as well. But like Jesus, like. Come on, you know what I mean? Like, control yourself. It's freaking Call of Duty. Like, just relax. It's, yeah. it's funny. All these guys get a little loose-lipped when they're playing Call of Duty. Like, um, not to this extent, but like they, they, you know, they they react to fans' comments and and they've you know talked about things that <laughs> uh, about their broader career. It's pretty interesting um, that Call of Duty is the moment they they kind of expose themselves. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think, um, yeah, I hope that uh, I hope that we move forward. We learn from this, and you know, I think he hurt a lot of people out there. So it's on him to now figure out a way to make it better. But all right, let's take a break, and we'll come back with some basketball talk. All right, Nathan, let's talk about All Star Weekend. So this this past weekend um, on Sunday, we had a condensed All Star format. With the three-point contest, the skills contest, uh, the all-star game with the dunk contest sandwiched in between at halftime. So this was a condensed all-star format because of, of the COVID, because of COVID and um, you know, trying to limit the the fanfare and the amount of time players have to actually spend in Atlanta. Yep. And it, you know, overall I thought it turned out to be a, a pretty solid weekend, given that, you know, in general, a lot of the players did not want to come. And there was not a lot of enthusiasm for this. It, it turned out okay. So before we go into the individual events, I did want to get your thoughts just on this new condensed format that they came with, what you thought of it. Did you enjoy All-Star Weekend or did you think it, it kind of flopped? I, for, for what it was and for what I expected it to be, and like you said, for what the players' interest level seemed to be, I actually thought it was quite fun. Um I thought that it was one too many events that day. Like the dunk contest at halftime felt really, really just rushed. And there was only three contestants and the whole thing felt like a little bit of a sham. But, you know, a lot of times Saturday night, everybody loves Saturday night the best, right? Because you have the skills challenge, three-point dunk. And then Sunday, the game sometimes can be pretty laissez-faire. Oftentimes the players are extremely hungover. So that quality can never really be guaranteed on I think last year with because of Kobe and everything it was phenomenal but that's actually the exception not the norm so it was cool that that day of basketball brought us like an awesome three-point contest and even there's a couple decent dunks I think the format but see I think they would never change it because the money from that whole weekend is too much to ignore plus you have the the rookie sophomore game uh, or whatever the rising stars game as well. So I think there's a way to make it into a two night thing where the dunk contest, rookie sophomore and whatever we t- version the skills challenge becomes is kind of on one night. 
And then that three-point contest with only All-Stars leading up to the game. Like, I thought it was so sick that every contestant was an All-Star. Um, and I think it adds, they were all wearing their all-star jerseys. It adds so much because you can see, you know, okay, who's on whose team? Like, what's the rivalry going to be later? And then when Mike Conley looked like in his debut all-star game, he was going to win the title and Steph just snatched it back. Like that was awesome. And then they immediately go out into the court and play the real game. So I kind of like that element. I think there's a way to make it a two night event, but doing it all at once would be overload and also take away from a lot of the fun, even from the players who get to, you know, party all weekend in normal times. Yeah. I, I will say I, I definitely do miss the the full weekend because the players miss it first of all too, because for them, like you said, it's, it's a big party. So they love going for all-star weekend. It's a break. They don't have any games coming up right after. Um, and all these guys get to hang out. I, I like the traditionally the Saturday dunk contest, three point contest and the Sunday all-star game. But I actually didn't mind this format at all because not only did you have all the all stars in the three point contest, like you mentioned, but it every it just one event led to another. And one of the things I found in previous all star weekends is that Sunday is kind of a letdown because you've yeah. had all this great stuff. Then the game comes and the game is just whatever. But because the game was preceded by all this other really exciting content, uh, I didn't feel the kind of apathy sometimes I do have towards the all star game. So I, I definitely liked it. I, I think the talent they had in the three-point contest definitely stood out. Yeah. I, I think, you know, because there have been previous years, there's some random guys in there. Like Vashawn Leonard has won a three-point contest. Jason like, Capono's won Jason Capono. Like, these are scrubs. I get the dunk contest. I understand why it's just become where none of the big stars are going to do it. But the three-point contest always has that balance of some scrubs, but big-name guys. Like, this is, this is what, Curry's sixth or seventh time? participating even though he's only he won a lot i think this was his second win right yeah and second win right so i, I think they got a the fact that it was all stars like booker levine big names i definitely think that's something they should carry over and the the dunk contest it was too short but i definitely did like the change where um the final round was just voting which one was better um and it just made it simpler because instead of adding, you know, two different dunks and the scores and all of a sudden one guy looked like he was better, but the scores didn't add up the right way, it just made it very clear. And I, so that was the other change or the new thing that came out that I wish they'd kind of adopt for other uh, dunk contests. Yeah, I totally forgot about that. Like that would have solved the the Aaron Gordon, Zach Levine issues of years past. And some of these contests that feel like they're, they're supposed to go one way. And then Aaron Gordon versus... Uh, who was the guy last year? Uh, Derek Jones, right? Derek Jones, yep. Where it's a, you know, Dwayne Wade can't sabotage that win for Gordon. And I did actually like that a lot because, and so maybe this is the caveat. So me, you, and Kush found an amazing arbitrage opportunity. I'm looking at the fan duel because, like, betting is legalized in Illinois for better or worse. But I'm looking at the uh, odds, right? And we don't, I mean, we don't really know Cassius Stanley, barely know Anthony Simons and, and, uh, Obi Tobbins, you know, played a few games here and there, but like, so Cassius Stanley, there's only three people. Cassius Stanley is minus 155. Obi Toppin's like plus 250 and Anthony Simons is plus 600. And I'm like, why the hell would one of three contestants be such low odds? Like what is Cassius Stanley? Like fucking Vince Carter reincarnated. And we immediately slapped the bet down on Simons. 
as the week progressed, the odds started getting better for him and they kept giving me options to cash out. And I was like, nah, fuck you. But Simon, oh, sorry, Stanley, as we found out, had broken Zion Williams's vertical record at Duke and was supposed to be this like amazing dunker. And then we started getting worried. He got screwed on that first round score, which actually probably saved our ass. And even in the final, I was worried because Simons didn't actually kiss the rim. And I was like, are they going to give him enough credit for that? And thank God they did. But it was fun, right? Because it was a three to two score, him to, you know, Simons to top him. And it was, I was just trying to count how many Simons faces there were to see if (laughs) we got to our required number. But I thought that was a really cool way to end it. I don't like the only three, only three dunkers though, because I just like to see more dunks. So if they did something like that, where they went back to four, or really, if you're ending the final round on just one dunk, you can even go to like six if you can get it. And then um, it would be a really cool way to finish. So I do agree with that. Yeah. Uh, the, look, betting on the dunk contest this is my first time ever doing it. And I want to do it every year after this because I've never been more invested in just uh, what. Yeah. Like you said, when Stanley, when his second dunk came out flat, I was so, so happy uh, because after the first dunk where he got a what score of 44. Yeah. Um, I was kind of worried. I was like, okay, he might get a 50 on the next one. You know, maybe they'll uh, um, compensate for that low score he gave. They Everyone gave him. But he ended up getting bounced. And then, like you said, Simon's not kissing the rim. I was so when he first did that dunk, I was so confused at what actually happened. But the commentators were going crazy. They were like, did he just kiss the rim? Did he, you know, before they show the replay? And I was like, yeah. oh my God, did he? Then they show the replay and he's like, six inches away yeah and, and he got up but like the way they made up. it sound i was like it's a lock it's five zero like holy they shit. made it sound like he was making out with the rim while he was up there and then um <laughs> he after that i was like oh it's done he's too far away they're not gonna get him the win but then like you said i counted up the simons's like cards and man it was it was a good feeling to hit on a six to one which i still have no idea why it opened like that yeah, it's crazy. It only dropped to plus 350. So that's where it was by the time of the contest. But yeah, dude, we bid on everything. Like we, um, and I think part of that, by the way, is because a lot of money must have been on Stanley. So they didn't want to flatten the odds too much because yep. then they would have to pay out more on Stanley. But we, um, we even, it was a 20 point win for Team LeBron, right? But we had the under 318 and a half. And it was, for those who people who think we're crazy for betting the under in an All-Star game, first thing I'll say is, yes, you're probably right. But secondly, <laughs> Steph Curry had a three to win it that would have led to 317 points. He misses. They come down, hit a three, so it's over. But then the very next possession, Dame ends it from 45 feet. So we were this close to hitting on basically everything we touched. The fun thing about the over-under in this All-Star game, too, is the Elam ending kind of throws – you can't even forecast what's going to happen based on the first couple quarters because um, the Elam ending caps, obviously, Team LeBron's team at 24 points, which you're like, that's great. That's suppressing, you know, instead of them getting 40 or 50, um, they're definitely not going to score more than 24. But then the losing team, depending on how far back they are at the end of three, you know, they could they could score how many ever points. And so it was interesting watching that and trying to figure out, okay, like what is the, we want it to be a close game. So it caps the amount of scoring in the fourth and that goes into the over under. It was, uh, it just made everything a lot crazier. So I think that is another fun one. Like we didn't talk about the Elam ending, but I think um, they, I think it needs a little bit of tweaking last year. It worked because it was a very close game this year. It, 
the game wasn't even close heading into the fourth. But I but still I, like the concept. Well, so I was actually thinking about this because I kept telling you Elam ending is not that tight. Last year was like a dream scenario. That's not a guarantee. But I actually I'm going back on what I said because in either scenario, it's great. Who wanted to see that game go on for a full 12 minutes in the fourth quarter? Like the fact that it could end as quickly as it did when it was a blowout was kind of refreshing in a way, right? And you still add in the layer of just like we talked about last year when there's the pickup basketball, you're playing to a score and that game-winning shot. There's always a game-winning shot. And when Lillard hit that 40-foot three, it was like, damn, that's a game-winner, even though they were up 20 at the time. And so I think it actually protects the integrity of like the game-winner while also not making a slog through this terrible game that's a blowout. Or the flip case, which is what we saw last year, it's a close game that goes down the wire to the wire and every possession is important. So I think I would have... That's the thing, right? I think you're right. It, it definitely... I was okay with the ending, but part of me being okay with the ending and rooting for them to hit 170 was because we were trying to hit that under. So yeah. I was just trying to get the game over as soon as possible. I But look, look they started playing hard. And... Um, Chris Paul was slowing the game down and calling out plays like, you know, he was trying to burn clock, which was, which yeah. was funny too. Like he was trying to get Phoenix like a top two seed. <laughs> yeah. And, That's how and, methodical he was playing. Yeah. And all these guys start playing uh, a little bit harder. So it was, the only question was I'll ask you, let me ask you this. Did, did Giannis, you know, Giannis was MVP 16 of 16, 35 points. Was he the rightful MVP or should it have gone to someone else? It should have gone to Giannis uh, because he had, well, looking back, it should have gone to Dame, but Dame put up a flurry of points near the end where voting was pretty much done at that point, right? Yeah. Um, or voting was ongoing through a lot of the games. So, but Giannis, it was not impressive because it's an all-star game, but still 16 for 16 with a couple of crazy shots, including that bank three. I'm not, I'm not upset about it. I'm not upset, but most of that points, it's almost like we're inverted garbage time. Like most of those points came in like the first and second quarter. Like he had 19 points before I even realized he had scored. Yeah. Right. So it was that it was that subtle and quiet because it was just open dunks. I thought it should have gone to Dame. Like he hit all the big shots in the fourth. Granted, they had a big lead, so it's like, okay, how impressive was it really? But we had, of course, bet Giannis. So I was <laughs> I was hoping that it would would finish as him. But um yeah, I, I think that like it reminded me of when Anthony Davis won it in New Orleans where they just kept feeding it to him and he had like 50 and it was the worst All-Star game ever. <laughs> yeah. I think it direct correlation to how much fun those those cities are. Uh, like Indianapolis next year should give us a really good All-Star game because um, the, the guys have nothing to do on Friday and Saturday. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, also, separately from the game, I want to talk to you about the skills challenge because the skills challenge is almost unwatchable at this point. Like Luka Doncic would have been faster if, Kristaps had just rolled him down the court versus watching yeah. him lumber through whatever that was. How do we fix this? Because it seems like now the big men take it fairly seriously, but the guards don't. But at the end of the day, it's really just about who can hit that three-pointer on their first try. So what's the mechanism to making this better? I actually prefer just dumping it all together and going back to that like WNBA player, NBA legend, NBA star, like trio shooting thing. That was more fun. But do you have any ideas for what they should do here? That was fun just because of the eclectic cast of characters you had and um, just watching. But then once again, the problem with that is the three, it always came down to the three pointer or the half court shot in the, 
that old version. The skills challenge comes down to the three pointer, which we talked yeah. about last time. It's just kind of dumb because that's the limiting factor in all this. It doesn't matter how fast you did everything else. If you miss that first one, it gives the other guy a chance to come back and win. Um, here's what they got to do. They got to take out all the running because that's where guys are dogging it, making them go through the cones. You know, they're trying to act too cool. They're trying to act like they're not trying so hard, you know, running back up and down the floor. Take all mm-hmm. that out. Have them stand in one place, make passes into one specific area. And then from that same place, I don't know, make a, a three pointer, make a shot, then like step forward, make another shot, make it all very tight. That's not and, a bad idea. And I, cause I don't think people are dogging when they're doing the shooting or when they're doing the passing. It's only when they're running from station to station. So just take out the running entirely. That's actually not a bad idea. You could make it all a half court setting. And so even if you do move them around, they're not going crazy. They're going from corner three to like top of the key to other corners. So I, maybe that's too much actually, but like something that's like pretty minimally intensive and you just have them competing on opposite ends and then whatever you just show TV wise. And that way they're not necessarily looking at each other. They're just playing their own game. Cause right now it's, it's, it's hard. It's tough yeah. to watch. It's like an immediate waste of 10 minutes or 20 minutes of your life. Yeah, I always, I'm always like, why do I get excited about this? Because the moment it starts, I'm like, this is, this just sucks. Um, yeah. Um, anything else All Star Game related? LeBron. Uh, I've never seen LeBron take himself out of an All Star Game before. He didn't even play in the second half. It's one of those things where um, I don't know if you've been in the situation, but you know, as a kid, and let's say your parents make you do something, and you say you don't want to because it's not going to be fun, and you hate it, and it's going to suck. Yeah. Then you actually end up having fun, but then you don't want to concede that they were right all along, and yeah. so you you kind of you know you act like it wasn't that great. I think LeBron was doing a little bit of that, where he was so vocal against this All Star game uh, that if he now went out and spent thirty minutes going hard and actually trying. Um, you know, and having fun, it, it would look kind of badly. So I think part of it was just, look, I never wanted to do this. I'm just going to coast, play, you know, 10, 15 minutes, and then just let everyone else take it. Um, but I didn't have a problem with it because he was still having fun. Um, him and Steph were kind of, I, I think that interaction was the most interesting. I've never seen LeBron and Steph engage in that kind of uh, yeah, jovial of a manner, right? Um and, and that was very interesting because everyone knows that LeBron has – he doesn't respect Steph the same way he respects a KD or a Draymond or some of these other guys. Yeah. And seeing them kind of just have this little buddy-buddy interaction I thought was was interesting. So that's what I took away from LeBron. Okay, so not about him openly quitting on his team. That's the awesome or, not about, or not about him being 4-0 uh, in uh, as, as a captain. You were right. Last, year, last week you said it was 3-0 and this was his fourth win. So now we get the, the you know, the like Le- Simmons used to say, the LeBron Mafia to talk him up as the next GM yeah. or next owner. Of I know, NBA. I know. Sim- Simmons was, was, was really upset about that, how people are going to run away with this as a LeBron. And it actually over. happened to some degree. Like people started being like, oh, wow, what a shrewd mind. Meanwhile, like KD's just picking his buddies and he doesn't care about anything. So, so I'm going to bring a hot take. Um and along the lines of you know the LeBron mafia or whatever, right? Look at how fun that team was having. Look at how much fun and joy LeBron's team was playing with. KD, just by the way he picked his team, just by the the cult, the tone he set from the very beginning, none of those guys really cared. And so I think that in 
I know it's just the All-Star game, but that is something that LeBron does bring to every team is he brings energy, he brings a culture. And I think he did a little bit of that in the All-Star game. So I, I'm not trying to make too big of a thing of it, but I don't think that's a coincidence that he picks guys and they're all having fun. I'm looking at uh, Durant's roster, and there's eight guys that you could argue are ball hogs who don't like to pass. <laughs> Kawhi, Jason Tatum, Kyrie Irving, Bradley Beal, Zach Levine, Donovan Mitchell, Julius Randle, with two more bonus, Nikola Vucevic is not exactly the playmaking wizard out there, and James Harden, who does pass a lot but does shoot a lot as well and has the highest usage every year. So now looking at it, and Durant on top of that, who if he had played would have probably been in a similar vein, and Embiid, who didn't even play. So yeah, I think um, all in all, you could argue that he was just like, let me sort descending on points per game and go that direction. <laughs> Exactly, but uh, all right. It, let's but it was move fun, on. man. I, I want. I want to add that the draft. I also really enjoyed just watching those guys draft. Yeah, um, the Utah they, Jazz thing was interesting to say. Yeah, I love how that became its own story, and like you know, they were asking Donovan Mitchell about it and Rudy Gobert about it. Like it's such a big deal, but it is interesting. And LeBron's comments didn't help when he was like, "Oh no, I you know, it's not about disrespect, but who liked playing with Utah when they were growing up when like." Uh, NBA Jam. Yeah, or whatever. it sounds like that's disrespectful, Bron. Like Donovan Mitchell <laughs> is not the same player as John Stockton. Exactly. Um, but but yeah, I thought those. All right, good. so let's talk trade deadline because that's coming up in a couple weeks. We'll we'll cover it briefly because I think a lot more deals are set to sh- take shape. And you know, even before we get to the trades themselves, last week when we were talking about how Brooklyn was going to add to their team. We talked Javel McGee. We talked Andre Drummond. I mean, either of those two could still be a possibility, but Blake Griffin ended up there. Um, so, you know, opening it up, do you see and, – and just announced tonight, LaMarcus Aldridge is going to be sat for the Spurs as they try to find a trade partner. So what kind of deadline do you think uh, you see taking shape here? Active, inactive, sellers, buyers? Like how do you see this kind of playing out? Uh, I I think I actually have no idea. I think it should be active. I think there are a lot of moves that a lot of the contending teams should be making. Um, for example, I think Boston is a very obvious candidate, um, and you know they've been linked to Harrison Barnes. Uh, they've been linked to some other guys as well. And in classic Boston fa- fashion, Danny Ainge recently talked about how they were in the sweepstakes for Harden. They were in discussions, you know, uh, the Celtics are always there, but never end up coming out with the guy. Um, And, but look, the Clippers, I think can make a move. They still lack a playmaker. Can they get a guard? Can they get a George Hill? Um, Some guy to provide some kind of playmaking. And, you know, they've got some contracts like Lou Wills they could ship out. I'm looking at the Sixers. uh, If they can make a splash move, because I think with Brooklyn kind of gearing up now, the Sixers have to do something. Do they go after a Kyle Lowry? Um, and then the Nuggets are another team where, look, Jokic is having such a good season, and they're still floundering a little bit defensively. They're train wrecked. Their rotations, um, you know, Gary Harris has not this, been the same player. Can they move him and, and, and get some other pieces? So I think all these contenders should be aggressively trying to make a move because as good as the Lakers are, as good as the Nets are, I still feel like this year is pretty open-ended. It's not like the Warriors Durant years where you have to kind of throw the season away and think about the future. All these teams have contracts, have assets they can move. 
and go after you know pieces like Buddy Heald, Kyle Lowry, Harrison Barnes, fringe guys that can help put you over the top. So I'm looking to see what those teams do. Yeah, you know what's funny is that like part of what creates a lot of buyers is a lot of people, a lot of teams feeling like they have a chance. But we've kind of crossed the threshold of that where so many teams feel like they have a chance because they do call it the playing game, call it the like incredible parody in the middle of each conference that there could also not be enough sellers. Like there might be a market that's not really at equilibrium, right? You could talk about Sacramento, like you said, Houston has a bunch of tradable pieces, uh, you know, maybe Oklahoma City. But after you get down the list, who else is willing to trade and sell the farm, right? Because let's take let's take the bottom of the East, for example. Pistons, they could, right? But they kind of already got rid of Blake. They got rid of Drummond last year. They don't. They got rid of Derrick Rose. Who else do they really have? They're not going to trade Jeremy Grant. They're not going to trade any of their young guys yet, right? So what else are they, can they offer? Cleveland, they have a bunch of young guys. Their only piece is maybe Drummond, maybe Kevin Love, who doesn't have that much appeal. Um, and then after that, you're talking about a bunch of teams who kind of think that they might have a shot at the play-in tournament, whether it's the Wizards, the Hornets, the Bulls, um, you know, whoever else is. I'm, I'm forgetting another team that's down there in the East, but like a lot of teams are not yet committed to being sellers. Same in the West, right? After you get past Houston, Minnesota to some degree, but they don't really have that many players to trade. Uh, Sacramento is apparently starting to become a seller, but then there you have New Orleans who thinks they're right, who thinks, you know, they're right in it. Then you have Oklahoma City who's already traded a bunch of guys. And then you go into like the Warriors, Memphis, San Antonio, et cetera, Dallas. So I really wonder if there's enough sellers to actually appease all of the teams that are trying to load up for one playoff run, whether that's to bolster their title contention hopes or whether that's to bolster their ability to get out of the play-in tournament or even to find themselves in a top 10 seed to say, hey, let's roll the dice and whatever happens, happens. Maybe we luck our way into, you know, the eight spot or the seven spot. And I think, you know, Harrison Barnes is obviously a name. Victor Oladipo is a name. P.J. Tucker, Drummond. Uh, There's guys that you can list, but they're not – as many sort of like needle movers as you might typically see at a deadline, partially because the big domino already fell with the James Harden trade. Yeah. But a lot of these, these teams that are at the very bottom and are looking to tank are loaded with talent. Um, uh, OKC has Horford. I don't know if anyone's going to take Horford's contract, but Horford is, is still a, a piece that might interest a team. Um, the Kings have Barnes. They have Bayalitza as well, who apparently has got an interest from four or five different teams. You're right. None of these guys are are changing the the landscape of of who's contending. But a a team like Philly, a team like Denver, they need to make moves on the fringes. And I think that could be enough to catapult them into a um, kind of a different level. And so I while I agree with your point that a lot of teams are actually trying to compete, especially with a play in tournament, some of these teams that are selling. if you can trade a player and get even a late first round pick, like Sacramento, for example, if they want to trade with Boston, they get a late first rounder. You can package that late first rounder plus another pick and try to move up in this draft potentially. I don't think a lot of teams are going to try to trade down from one through five. Maybe not at all. Exactly. But, but there's still, you know, guys in the six. There, there's a couple of tiers in this draft, like six and ten, and then there's another drop off. I think that happens. Um, the, you know, 
getting multiple picks is still worth it to kind of uh, move up in the draft if you need to. So I think a lot of these teams that are uh, at the bottom will definitely sell some of these guys. They don't have any need for these players when they're trying to tank. Um, so I don't know. But at the same time, it's it's kind of a weird year. I don't I don't know if any teams are going to make any panic moves. But um, On the note of the draft, I can't remember a year like this where the top five is so set. Um, like usually, you know, okay, here are the top three guys, here are the top two guys, whatever. But like to have the top five pretty much locked in stone where there really feels like there's a drop off. Um, the last year I can think of is almost like, you know, maybe the 03 draft where it was like, okay, we knew Bosch, Wade, Mello, Braun, um, and Millicent were going to be the top five. Right. And even Wade was kind of a question mark. There was, yeah. there was talk about whether Miami was going to take Chris Kamen at that pick. Right. So um, there's not really that much certainty ever that deep into a draft. And so to see it this year makes it makes me believe it's going to be very, very hard to, to move into that top five. And every team is figuring out a way to, to position, position themselves. Like there are going to be two really, really big what ifs with both Houston and with Minnesota this year where they need to do everything in their power to retain their pick nope. or it could be a franchise altering type loss. Right. With Houston. It's top four protected. Oklahoma City gets the best two picks out of themselves, Houston and Miami. Unless Houston's pick is top four, then they get the other two. If Houston doesn't convey a pick this year, they actually don't have to fulfill that obligation at all. So it's not even like it rolls over to next year. That's why it's such a big what if. With Minnesota, there's, of course, this top three protected. Otherwise, it goes to Golden State. With the flattened lottery odds, it's maybe a 50-50 chance that these picks actually stay in-house. But I'm wondering, like, if you're Houston, why would you keep anybody there? Like, as long as somebody has any sort of value, you need to ship them out because the idea that you could either have Cade Cunningham or a Jalen Green or nothing is not like Memphis LeBron levels in 03, but it's pretty damn close, you know? So that that's going to be something I'm following as, as we progress towards the deadline and even towards the end of the year when they start conspicuously sitting guys. And Houston's got a lot of guys uh, that would have interest. Oladipo, um, yeah. P.J. Tucker. Uh, I mean, P.J. Tucker could help a lot of teams. Uh, so they definitely will be sellers. Minnesota will be sellers. Sacramento is going to be sellers. There are at least four or five teams that are 100% not committed to winning at all in the second half of the season. Yeah. Um, and look, you talk about the Pelicans. They could, I, I think they were originally talking about moving uh, Lonzo. They're not going to do that anymore. But maybe Bledsoe, can, is that a contract they can get off of? I don't know. Um, but they should also, in my mind, be kind of retooling that roster. Because as is, it's not going anywhere. Just be happy that Zion is as good as he's been and then kind of make moves around the edges now. Yeah, Bledsoe is a, a, one of those point guards you talk yourself into when you're desperate for a point guard, kind of like the Clippers are, yeah. right? <laughs> or kind of like Miami might be. Miami was rumored to have interest in Kyle Lowry, which makes a ton of sense, but they were also rumored to have interest in John Wall, which made no sense given his contract, um, even though he's playing decently. I mean, I think he's playing as well as anybody could have expected. I don't know that you openly trade for 90 million more of yeah. this, you know what I mean? So. There's not a lot of moves out there right now um, with the way contracts are set up, with the way free agency is going to be. You know, a lot of guys signed extensions like the Paul Georges, Giannis's, et cetera. So 20, everyone knows 21 free agency is not going to be great. 
the real carrot's going to come in 22. And then like you and I have talked about multiple times, there's really not this list of unhappy superstars. If Bradley Beal says he's staying put, if Carl Anthony Towns hasn't asked out yet, if Devin Booker is now happy, like who else is out there? Um, you know, I, I, I think in terms of game changers, it's going to be limited in terms of fringe guys. Yeah. Boston can go get Harrison Barnes and they can give up Grant Williams and Romeo Langford. Cool. Uh, <laughs> the Celtics with Harrison Barnes are not going to win the title, right? No. Um, the Clippers need someone. Denver needs someone. How good of a player that that is could actually impact their title hopes. But I don't know that the player that can actually lift them into true championship contention exists and is available. That's my point. It'll be funny, though. These teams that were connected to a rumored for James Harden, and they obviously they didn't get him. And then they end up overpaying for someone much worse, but they still end up giving a boatload of picks and, and you know, like like let's say Denver yeah. gets Buddy Healed instead, and they've they've given up the farm for him. Like it's it's just funny now looking back at it. That yeah, uh, or Tyler Hero is in Toronto because they finally yeah. agreed to give him up. <laughs> Dude, I saw a report today that was like, <laughs> it's just it's honestly like clockwork. It was uh, it was from Boston, and they were like. You know, Danny Ainge was a lot more interested in James Harden than he let well, that, on. That's what I said earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, you said that. Yeah. It's like, what the fuck? How many times are we going to do this? It's become oh, like a – it's just a meme at this point. I like, think Danny it's a joke. He must be in on the joke to even be leaking things like that at this point. Yeah. Yeah, it must be because, I mean, poor Boston fans are just getting tortured with all this uh, – the what-ifs from Danny Ainge. Yeah. The last thing I want to touch on um, in terms of current NBA is uh, MVP race. So we didn't really get a chance to talk about this at like our first half um, sort of check-in last week. But if you think about the top five right now, you know, we did this earlier in the season and it seems like the top three, you may quibble with the order, but the top three that we had, I think a month into the season hasn't really changed. It was Embiid, Jokic, and LeBron. Right. I would argue maybe LeBron has slipped out of that top three, just given his his numbers are declining. The team has obviously been losing a little bit more with Anthony Davis out. But I think it it's truly going to be a two man race, in my opinion. Um, Embiid has done some really, really amazing things this season compared to last. I think we not to call ourselves savants, but we did predict Embiid and Jokic at 25 to 1 apiece. Hope those out there took that advice. Uh, we, of course, didn't listen to our own medicine, but um, they've been dominant, right? Philadelphia has been awesome with him. Denver has struggled a little bit more, but now they're starting to pick it up. And Jokic is basically number one in every stat you can think of advanced, basic. Like he's got the stats argument, Embiid's got the wins argument. So, how do you have those two guys ranked? And is there anyone else you see creeping into that, you know, top three and maybe even the top two as we as we progress through the season? It's a three-man race. Embiid definitely has to be leading right now. I picked Jokic, and I know you picked Embiid, so I'd love to say Jokic. But at this point in time, Denver's still not good enough. Um, they're they're surging. They're they're closing in on like a that five spot, and they're not too far away from four. So they're getting better as the season progresses, but right now it's got to be Embiid. And, um, you know, the advanced metrics, you talk about Jokic leading all of them. Embiid is right behind him in a lot of them. And then defensively, he's on another level. Uh, and he's had moments in big games. Like, I know that shouldn't matter, but it it does. Like, 
and um, he's gone toe to toe with with good teams and, and put up big games and the game winning yeah. game, you know, that three that sent the game to overtime against Utah. Um, so uh, I think you have to say it's Embiid. I don't think we should dismiss LeBron that easily yet because um, the Lakers can still make a strong push in the second half of the season. People are dying to give it to LeBron. So if Embiid falters a little bit, Jokic falters a little bit, I can see just the 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 narrative kind of moving over back to LeBron. So I don't think he's completely out of it. Uh, I definitely think it's just those three guys, though. And I, I want to give us, like, how can we get more credit for the fact that we picked Embiid and Jokic? Like, what two guys on any NBA podcast before this season picked those two as their MVP? I, yeah, I heard a lot of Luka. I heard a lot yeah. of KD, a lot of AD, even a little bit of LeBron. I didn't hear a ton of Jokic and Embiid. And we're not hot take artists. We, we, you know, we a lot of times we. No, we're anything but. We're like, yeah, yeah too straight. <laughs> Myers Leonard had a point. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, no, so I think so. One thing that was working against our prediction is that no true center has won this MVP award since 2000 when Shaq won. Uh, the last maybe big man back to the basket big was Duncan in 03. So that's that was kind of like history was saying that we were going to be totally off. Yeah, do you think um, – look, I know we both don't want to pick Giannis. Do you think Giannis can creep back into the conversation? Because Milwaukee's been playing well. Three. He can finish top three. They have been playing well. His numbers are bonkers yet again. He cannot in any way, shape, or form win this award. Yeah. The only player in NBA history who's ever won three straight MVPs was Larry Bird in 84 through 86, and they had a couple titles in there. So I would be – you know, it's a regular season award. We say this every year, but we also say it's narrative driven and there is absolutely no narrative supporting Giannis doing so, especially because even if the Bucks finish number one, it's not going to be by a ton of games over Philly or Brooklyn. Yeah, it's not the historical dominance they had last year where you can at least, you know, that along with his stats and just his game breaking efficiency, you could say makes it worth it. But I agree. I don't think in any scenario he gets it unless he goes to another level and ends up with like, 36 points a game, but which is not something crazy, right? Something yeah. crazy. So, uh, it, and then Luca has also been making a push. Um, he Dallas was is playing better tonight. Yep. He's been great. His shooting numbers are going up. Uh, what do you think about him making some noise towards the end? If, if let's say Dallas gets into the four or five conversation, this was my problem with Luca preseason. If you remember, I said. He can get better as a player, certainly, but there's not much more he can do with his numbers. And his numbers are almost identical to what they were last year. And he's not a stalwart defensively, right? So he's not going to turn into, like, prime Scottie Pippen suddenly. The only thing he can do is improve his shooting, which he has done since the start of the year, but he's still prone to nights like tonight where he had a triple-double but then went 2 of 10 from 3. So, and my second point was Dallas is not going to be good enough. I don't think a five seed is going to win the MVP when you have Jokic and Embiid and even LeBron or Giannis playing the way that they are. Uh, I don't see the path because unlike – like, for example, let's take a team like Utah, right? Utah has no MVP candidates. They're first in the West. But after that, the second, third, fourth have guys who could potentially win the MVP. Same thing in the East. You could argue Embiid. You could argue Giannis. You could even make a current argument for Harden. While you wouldn't necessarily maybe keep that argument because Durant's eventually going to come back, there are too many barriers of players on good teams who are going to sit above Luka. 
Um, I'm looking at the current FanDuel odds right now. So Embiid is first with plus 190. Uh, LeBron is second, plus 260. And Jokic is third, plus 480. After that, Steph plus 1,200. Giannis plus 1,800. Harden, Luca, same thing. And then Lillard and Kawhi plus 2,100. So it seems like it's a three-horse race that even the betters are thinking that. Um, I think Jokic's odds will climb as the Nuggets move up the standings. It's not a bad bet. It's not a bad bet because uh, his numbers are just – they're breaking basketball reference right now. But I would say the same thing I just said about Luca. Can he catch – the Lakers and the Sixers in a meaningful enough way, given that his play compared to Embiid's play isn't that different. Yeah, that that's going to be the hard thing to overcome because his numbers can't get better than they are. Like, it, yeah. there's just no scenario. Uh, it has to be on wins. So the Nuggets have to go on an unreal tear, uh, and you have a lot of good teams standing in front of you. Um, so, look. I'm, I'm look. I'm, you know who I'm rooting for. I'm pulling for LeBron somehow yeah. to get this. I, I think he he deserves a career achievement MVP. Um, and if I mean, it's you close, gotta respect the king. He's averaging twenty five, eight, and eight, and people are saying, yeah, it's a down and, year. And with, if Anthony Davis misses more time down the stretch, and LeBron can up those numbers a bit, uh, you know, the efficiency might drop. But if he gets it to like twenty seven, ten, and nine, he all of a sudden has a pretty good case. And if they end up with a you know one or two seed. But I don't know. Like he was gunning Hardford in the first half. At some point, he might just say it's not happening, and then start to take a couple more rest days because he's been blogging a lot of minutes this season. And and you know yeah. LeBron, like he he knows the bigger picture, and he might decide to to slow things down. So we'll see. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so we'll see what happens. The final thing we want to touch on uh, before we run Hall of Fame finalists were announced. So because of COVID, they pushed the twenty twenty. Um, ceremony back a year but they're going to do a separate one for this year uh despite you know both ceremonies happening the same year so last year of course is the legendary class of tim duncan kevin garnett and the late great kobe bryant this year the finalists were announced chris bosh who's been on the ballot now twice uh chris weber who's been on the ballot a number of times and ben wallace who's also been on this ballot a number of times so those were the primary finalists if i'm getting that right is that correct yeah, so, Tim Hardaway. Tim Hardaway. So th- those are the main guys, at least. So let's yeah. talk about those three really quickly. Three big men, two of them who played for the Bullets that we traded before they actually got good, um, as is commonly uh, part of our franchise history. What do you think? Bosch feels like the likeliest, but what do you think about uh, all the other two and maybe even if you disagree with Bosch's inclusion? Yeah, so I want to talk about Weber versus Bosch because they're more similar. Uh, ben Wallace gets in on a completely different argument. I think Bosch is more likely to get in. And I was having this conversation with a couple of my buddies. Bosch is likely to get in because of the rings, because of the Olympic gold medal. Um, And he's just had a solid career, you know, in terms of piling up the all-star appearances. Uh, But Weber, I feel like was the better player. And I I think it's his career is a little bit tragic because the knee injuries kind of sapped it from him having a more prolonged impact. But at his peak, at his prime, he was a, a player that was extremely special. Right? I mean, he wasn't just a Garnett or one of these big men. He was a skilled passer. Uh, everything f- can fl- flow through him in the high post. And he was a great scorer. He could shoot the three in a time where not many big men shot threes. 
Um, he was kind of a unicorn back then. And so I wish he would get in, but I think he's not going to get in over Bosch, first of all. Um, but I hope, hopefully eventually he does, he does make yeah, it. Yeah. I, I think unequivocally, unequivocally, Chris Weber's prime was better than Chris Bosch. Yep. To me, that's not even a contest. Like when we did that rewatchables of the O2 Kings Lakers and we walked through the all NBA teams that year, do you remember how stacked they were? And yep. Weber was first team all NBA. You're talking about in an era where the forwards were Duncan, Nowitzki, Garnett. Like th- those are three of the 20 best players of all time. Uh, and Weber was first team all NBA, right? Not to mention other guys, Antoine Walker, Antonio McDice, et cetera. So with Bosch, he's an 11 time all star, but just one all-NBA appearance. I think that's very telling to where he stood in the NBA's hierarchy, which was probably like the 20th best player in the league year after year. And so, yes, that qualifies for an all-star, and he did it for a long time. And, you know, even his career was shortened a little bit because of the blood clots. But I just never felt like Chris Bosh had that outsized impact other than when he was in Toronto and they were mostly losing. Um, I know he was the linchpin to a lot of what the Heatles did in terms of defensive uh switching and versatility but some of the years that he got in on to the all-star game like if you go back and look at these numbers and compare it to the players in this all-star game that we said had no chance like for example there was a two-year stretch the two years they uh the last two years in miami with lebron he averaged 16 points six and a half rebounds 1.4 assists shooting 53% from the field, 33% from three, and 80% from the line. Those are pedestrian numbers. I know they won a lot, and numbers don't tell the whole story, but those are two all-star years. And it was more of like, hey, Bosch is in because Wade and Braun are in. And while I think Bosch is going to get in, and deservedly so, as an 11-time all-star, two-time champ, I really think Weber's been forgotten and marginalized in kind of a damaging way to how good he was uh, from like 2099 to like 04, 99 to 05. And look, Tracy McGrady got in for that type of peak. I mean, maybe Tracy McGrady's peak was higher than Weber, but not by that much. Uh, you know, not, and it's not like he had any sort of playoff lore. Weber went much further and much more consistently than Tracy McGrady did. And I love T-Mac. I just think Weber, especially when you factor in the Michigan uh, era for him, it's a no-brainer. So they had to vacate all those wins. So I don't even think you can use the Michigan um, oh, resume. <laughs> I totally right. forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't uh, – yeah, so look, I think Weber – I'm a – I'm a Kings fan, obviously. I love Chris Weber. I think he should absolutely get in. There should be no question. Bosch, though, I, I will say, despite his numbers being lackluster, I think you forget how you mentioned he was his defense. He was really good and kind of a big key to why that Heat team was so good defensively. And his numbers were depressed, but he was also playing the third fiddle on a on a loaded team. Like Draymond Green's never going to have big numbers, but we give him he's going to be. Actually, I don't know. Will he be a Hall of Famer? Probably. Three-time champ. Um, defensive yeah. player accolade. Uh, you know, the defensive accolades. Uh, he's made several All-NBA or def- All-Defensive teams. Um, so I think Bosch gets some of, some of the argument for him is not just the, yeah, he's like a 2010 guy, not even 2010 over his career, but uh, defensively he was a lot. He also meant a lot to the game in terms of kind of unlocking the pace and space way that the Heat started playing after their first year. Um 
that, not pace okay. and space, but, but okay. spacing. I'm not going <laughs> to give him credit for like revolutionizing the game the way we would give Steph Curry credit for that, or Steve. No, Nash. no, no, no. He doesn't. He doesn't. But yes, yeah, so look, I I think Weber definitely is better, but I don't think we should marginalize Bosch because I don't think he was just simply a third fiddle. I think when you're in that role on that big of a team, you're not going to put up big numbers. That's just that's yeah. the downside. By the way, Bosch never made an all-defensive team for what it's worth. Um, but, you know, look, maybe this is the, the the blueprint for a guy like Carl Anthony Towns, right, who's put up a ton of numbers but hasn't ever sacrificed to win yet. And to find the best version of himself from a basketball success standpoint, he has to go to this type of role. We saw it with Kevin Love as well. Kevin Love wasn't a defensive menace like Bosch, but he did different kinds of things that allowed – the Cavs to win a title. So I think he's definitely set the blueprint for that. I I, I think both players should get in. And I also think Ben Wallace should get in as well um, as a, I think, four-time defensive player of the year, the heart yep. and soul of one of the biggest upsets uh, champions that we've seen in modern history, um, you know, with that 0-4 Pistons team. And, and he was three-time All-NBA, like second yeah. team, not first team, but still, like, just because yeah. of his defense, like, that says a lot. Yeah, he's not going to – I mean, I think he career, he averaged 5.7 points, 9.6 rebounds. So it's not one of the guys that John Hollinger is going to, like, think about at night. But at the same time, I think there's a there's a place for different kinds of uh, players. And 5X All-NBA, 6X All-Defense, four-time Defensive Player of the Year, champion. At some point, it starts to add up. Um he had a short peak for sure. It was basically just those Pistons years, but ultimately that's kind of why the NBA is what it is. Not every player needs to be a 25 points per game scorer. Um, and so if you think Wallace, like Mitch Richmond's in the hall, hall of fame, if you think Ben Wallace was really not as good of a player as him, then, you know, we have different ways of evaluating the game. Anyone who's watched Ben Wallace and seen the impact he had on that, that Detroit team and, I mean, you know he deserves it. He's one of those guys. That is Rodman's in the hall, right? Yeah, yeah. Like he's he's a Rodman type where the numbers are gonna not impress you at all. But when you watch him, you talk to him about it, his teammates. It's it's clear, um, and he was recognized, like you said, the All NBA All Defense Team, Defensive Player of the Year four times. Like that is not easy. Um, I, I I would argue that all other uh, at least three time winners are in the hall, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Dwight Howard will probably just, make the Hall of Fame too. Kembe, Ben Wallace, and Dwight. Yeah, and and Dwight will make it. So, um, so yeah. And the funny thing is, in 10, 15 years, we're going to be having this conversation uh, about Rudy Gobert. Ah, uh, yeah. But see, Gobert, like even as we're playing out his career, unless he they win, I don't think we're going to treat him with the same reverence, right? Like even Dwight Howard, if he doesn't. He won a title last year, but even if he didn't win a title, Dwight Howard at his peak was a top three guy in the NBA. Um, and he finished, what did he finish in MVP voting that year? In 2000? He finished in second. Right? Yeah. Rudy Gobert is never going to get to th- those heights. So I think Rudy Gobert will stack up the defensive awards, but without a championship or some kind of impact. Yeah, but neither, that, yeah. Well, I guess the question is, is Ben Wallace's case over Rudy just the ring? Because Rudy... You know, scores way better. Um, not crazy amount, but he's averaging 15 a game, right? Whereas Ben Wallace is like six or seven. Um, ben Wallace I, has I think four. 
defensive player of the years. I think Rudy actually could win his third this year. So they're going to start to look similar in terms of like all of the non-championship related accolades. Well, the ring, the ring matters. And then it was also a championship level team for several years, even if it's just one ring. Is Utah yeah. that team yet? Maybe this year and moving forward, but that's true. Detroit went to five straight conference finals, so I think that that yeah. counts for something. But all right, so we'll see what happens. Uh, do you know when they're announcing? I don't. I don't no, know I actually sure. don't. I don't follow it as like that closely. But this year is a lot more interesting. Um, I'm glad they held off getting... on Bosch to let those three yeah. kings kind of go in on their own. You know, Garnett, Kate. Yeah. Duncan and Kobe, who felt like they defined that era of basketball. Absolutely. Yeah. And Pierce, I think, is on the list this year, too. He's a first-timer. Oh, he's, he's going to be he's first a, ballot. He's a short. He's a short. So yeah, these are kind of like who's talking, the but yeah, yeah, Pierce is yeah. first ballot. So. All right, man. Well, that's a wrap. Um, so a lot happening. Bounced around a bunch of different topics. Uh, but But definitely looking forward to the second half of the season. So. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Thick and Thin on all major podcast platforms. Please email us at thickandthinhoops at gmail.com, and we will talk to you next week.